Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Dimitrios Matteo who is a film critic and a author. He has written a book on the new South American cinema for Faber. But today we're going to be talking about his new BFI Classics book on Mean Streets, Martin Scorsese's breakthrough film, not his first film, but his breakthrough film, certainly, which was released 50 years ago. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to like and subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter at drjonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y, or Instagram, the same uh, handle. But before you do any of that, enjoy the conversation. your relationship with those bfi books are you uh have you, are you have you been an ardent reader in the past um i wouldn't say ardent but a little bit mm. like you they've always i think they've always been in my in my life in a you know in a sense you know i've kind of um i've come by them or i've come by them you know now and again almost by chance you know i might be in the british in the BFI library, or I might want to read more about a particular film and 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 target one of them. Um, but I've I've just always been aware of them, and I've got a I've got a bunch at home. When I started um, writing this one or thinking about this one, we were in the first lockdown of the pandemic, mm. and you know, apart from looking at my bookshelves generally to see what I had on Scorsese, it was obviously well, you know, this has caught me unawares. <laughs> what have I what have I got of the BFI classics? And you know, there were uh, a bunch, you know. So I mm. think they've always kind of. Um, you know, been in my life, and I've got a few favourites. Um, and in an odd kind of way, I've got a few favourites that 
that have become almost as famous and kind of integral as the films themselves. You know, I will often, just as often as I'll watch Bringing Up Baby, I'll read the really good um, BFI classic on BFI Baby. Um, I'm Bringing Up Baby. Um, you know, it's a it's a wonderful uh, read and it can be as evocative of the film as the film itself. <laughs> mm, yeah, no, I, I, Adrian Martin's Once Upon a Time in America, I, I, I've returned to several times. And as you say, almost as, you know, it's almost like, also because Once Upon a Time in America is so long, it's probably takes less time for me to read his book than it does to watch the film. Yeah. What's your um, what's your relationship with Scorsese then? Um, well, I mean, on one level, it's the same as anybody else's. You mm-hmm. know, he's you know the awareness of the fact that he's you know a fantastic filmmaker and always an interesting filmmaker. And you know, even even if um, you know, I don't think he's on form, he's interesting. Um, so on on that very general level, you know, he's part of you know the the canon that I've kind of grown up with on a more personal level. You know, I remember Taxi Driver was probably, in 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 some respects, the first kind of adult film I saw, and I saw it on the sly with an older cousin. You know, I think I was like fifteen or something, and mm. uh, sneaked me in, and you know, kind of watched it from the back. And so, you know, my first Scorsese experience was literally having my kind of you know mind blown away by by Taxi Driver in a kind of illicit way in a sense um and um and, you know so and so but from there on you know i think you know his his to my mind best films are amongst my you know amongst my favorite films so taxi driver means a lot raging ball you know as soon as i saw it bang it's always in my you know in my kind of lists and and i just think it's a you know a majestic and, and extraordinary film and um and so when he i suppose when he touches me it's on a kind of visceral level mm. a level that sticks so you know there are four five six films of his that you know are kind of like in my film viewing dna if that makes sense Mm. Yeah, it's funny that you say that thing about but you know actually seeing it on the big big screen as the first time uh way of seeing scorsese as well must be must have been something incredible it was, yeah, no, it was it was just extraordinary, you know, the mood and the tone, you know, I think, you know, whenever I see see it again, you know, whenever you see, this is now Taxi Driver, but, but there's a similar, similar scenes in Mean Streets, but, you know, when you see, when I see again that, you know, the taxi driving through the streets at the beginning of the film, it takes me all the way back to that kind of first um, kind of visceral, um, almost life-changing, you know, experience, and, um and the shootout at the end of the film, the kind of grand scene, you know, was, you know, like a, a early introduction to to violence on screen for me because I was pretty young. Um, but also, which is what he's so good at, it made sense to me that there was a psychological element to this, you know, to, you know, to the man, you know, to the violence. Um you know, really kind of rammed home. I thought about that such, you know, for such a long time afterwards. Um, but there are scenes that have, you know, but again, when I, I mean, I really, I'm so sad that the first time I saw Mean Streets was on VHS, mm. uh, you know, because it was when I was older. It was a case, well, let's look up some Scorsese that I haven't seen. And because I would have loved to have experienced, um, you know, that first scene in 
or the whole sequence really in Volpe's, but when De Niro enters, well, when the camera first enters Volpe's and it kind of dollies along the, um, the the bar and you see all these extraordinary figures and it's all doused in red. Um, and then a few a few minutes later when De Niro walks in and, you know, um, and to jump in Jack Flash and it kind of cuts between him and Cartel and back again and the camera's doing all these different things and, you know, the speed changes, you know, but that's the kind of moment that, you know, that's like real cinema to me. And I, I really wish I'd seen it for the first time on big screen rather than um, rather than on VHS. Um, but it really whacked me when I saw it on video as well. Yeah, in the book, you mention it as one of the sort of like, that. that's one of the awe-inspiring moments of cinema for you. I think it is, yeah. Mm. And, um, and also, since we're talking, you know, and maybe, you know, my favourite, visually my favourite kind of, seen by you know by Scorsese you know the, the the people always when they talk about the definitive you know Scorsese moments you know and I, I, I do say this in the book but you know they might you know they mention the Copacabana scene in Goodfellas and what the camera's doing there and you know it's 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 amazing and, all, and also another wonderful and uh, one for me is the you know the the, the 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 boxing scenes in Raging Bull and especially the first one you know in slow-mo slow motion and everything but and they are definitive but this one um that one in Mean Streets is up there with those I think you know for the way that it introduces characters the the you know that sequence and the way it cuts between Cotel and De Niro um you know it, it tells you so much about the relationship and the dynamic between those characters um also I mean okay we've already seen De Niro blow up the mailbox I don't know if you know in that, that mm. first first glimpse of him when he kind of throws a firecracker or whatever it is in the mailbox. But that aside, this is the introduction to the Scorsese De Niro partnership, you know, when he when he walks into in into that bar with the two women on his arm, you know, grinning like a Cheshire cat. You know, it's an iconic, iconic moment. Absolutely. And he, he's just so confident and so full of uh of sass uh it's it's and and the the music the running says i i mean kind of kind of a, a another point but how did scorsese get all these songs because you, you know nowadays the the soundtrack would would sink the budget of an entire movie for this film and to be honest i'm not entirely sure i think they just managed it i know that yeah. he i know that he used some songs in this in main streets that he couldn't use in his in Who's That Knocking at My Door, you know, his first film. Mm. Um, and um, A, I think probably it was generally, you know, or certainly cheaper <laughs> then. Um, but also his producer was Jonathan Taplin, um, who, you know, used to be the manager for Bob Dylan and the band. I don't know for a fact, but, but you know, just maybe his kind of music connection, um, music connections smoothed the way for... For some of those, I suspect it was a a bit above, and I, and also I suspect maybe they because so much of the film was was made on the cheap. Mm. I suspect that you know if they were sitting down and and prioritizing here and there, it might have been on the music rather than uh, you know rather than locations and things. And I mean, talking about that cheapness, does he he gets hell of a lot of bang for his book, like the cherry bomb that goes in the mailbox, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he said he said something like the the economy dictated the style and the, and the style just happened to work. And I think I think that's really perceptive. 
you know, I mean, I, I think some of the some of the positive quality of the film kind of comes from the rawness and that that you get when you're doing it fast. And uh, you know, you, he was using students in New York. You know, I don't know. The, the the shoot was split between LA and New York. I mean, for for one of the kind of definitive New York films, it's interesting that you know more days were in LA. They did, broadly speaking, they did the interiors in LA and the exteriors in New York. Um, and in LA, he used the Roger Corman crew that he'd had on Boxcar Bertha, so like a professional crew, but again, one that was you know Corman was all about bringing things home on you know on, on as tiny a budget as possible they were all about pragmatic filmmaking but in new york they used students so so you know it was you know i mean i wonder i don't know if they talked about guerrilla filmmaking back then but maybe it would have been a little bit like that um there was certainly one scene famous scene when they're shooting on the streets of new york where they did lose a whole reel of film that, mm-hmm. that had all of de niro's close-ups on it but anyway i think i think the um that rawness uh and kind of gritty efficiency is what we see on screen. I think it works. But again, yeah. for you, there's a lot of bang for your back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the the thing that I I've noticed watching watch re rewatching Mean Streets um, in preparation for this this discussion, and it's something I noticed watching Taxi Driver relatively recent as well, is there's not that much sort of of what you'd normally ascribe to low budget. Um, independent aesthetic that maybe you'd see today, such as sort of like handheld camera over the shoulder shots, you know, um, he uses lots of quite complicated shots and he, you know, he's, he wants to put the the camera on a tripod when he can, when he gets the chance, he wants to, he does, he wants to keep it steady when he can, you know? Well, I think, I think he actually mixes it up. Exactly, yeah. And he, and he mixes it up. And, it, and again, it, what's lovely is it, you kind of feel as though the film is keeping keeping you on your toes. Mm. You know, I mean, and you're right, you know, you, you, you can't, you can't watch it expecting to see, you know, uh, you know, a, an indie film with in, entirely in handhold and raggedy camera and all of that. You know, the the, the early scene in the church is, um, again, as you suggested, it has a lot of really quite interesting shots and cuts in it. It really mixes mixes it up, but I mean the shots are quite classical and steady, but very dynamic and very interesting. Uh, but then you've got other scenes which, um, I mean, they didn't have Steadicam didn't exist then, but they had um, something called the Aeroflex BL, which I think some of the French directors were using. So it's as lightweight as they were going to get. And Kate, Kent Wakeford, the the, the um, cinematographer, kind of created a rig for himself, a kind of shoulder rig, I think. So he was carrying it a lot in the pool room scene, the famous mm. pool room scene. I mean, that's, you know, effectively handheld camera. So, uh, and some of the bar scenes are, but he, so he kind of mixes it, I think. Oh, but again, the restaurant ones are more classical. Mm. I think what he's, you know, maybe, you know, and, and I suspect that some of it was, some of the approach was kind of pragmatic. You know, what shall we use given the time we've got? They did the Paul Wim scene, which is incredibly complicated in 16 hours. So you're not going to set up loads of, you know, loads of track and stuff like that. But in the restaurant scene where, and again, those scenes were about power, you know, the the the, the more kind of godfather-like scenes where you're trying to kind of like, where he's kind of like making it very clear who's got the power in the room, then it makes sense to have, you know, static shot, frame it you know and all that um so there's a lot of variety in film in short Mm. 
And I mean, it's interesting you bring up, I mean, there's a couple of things in the book that I was, I was really sort of question marks that, that, um, I mean, one mistake I always make about Mean Streets is I always think of it as his first film. And of course, it's like his third, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of like, but it feels like a first film for some reason. And I mean, I've seen the others as well, so there's no excuse for my stupidity. But uh. well, it's, it's the it's the it's very much the first in the sense that well, two reasons. One, I think it's it's the it's the film in which um, all the work he'd been doing, all the studying, you know, formal studying and 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 informal, you know, film, you know, intense cinephilia studying that he'd been doing since he was a kid, but all of the work. All the study he'd done, and and he'd made shorts. Um, Who's that knocking on my door? Was a personal film, but very much a kind of like quasi. He started it when it, I think it was a postgrad film, and then took several years to finish. So that was personal, but in no real kind of you might say professional context. Mm. Then he made Box Called Bertha for Corman, which was an exploitation film. So it wasn't his. It wasn't a personal film at all. But he was working with professional crews who really knew what they that, what they were doing, and I think taught him a lot. I think, and he learned a lot. And you know, most of his crew on Mean Streets was that boxcar Bertha crew. So he had the professional experience in one film, and the and the personal storytelling in another film. And what Mean Streets did was put those together. So mm. I think it's the first film because it's when he really found his voice and it all clicked. He was mm. making a film he wanted to make. And the other reason it's the first film is because it's like a calling card film. You know, it's the one that, you know, when it opened at New York Film Festival, kind of blew everybody away and Pauline Kale, you know, immediately championed it, which obviously was very important. Other producers started to take notice. He'd shown an interest in directing um, Taxi Driver before Mean Streets came out, but the producers didn't really think, you know, that he had the chops for it. He was a young, unknown, you know, relatively inexperienced director. But when they saw um, Mean Streets and De Niro, they figured those two guys could make Taxi Driver. So, you know, in a way it was, a, it was you know, it launched it. So you're not wrong in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes my stupidity manages to, to get to a deeper truth. Um, uh, and the other thing that 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 I hadn't really thought about, but was this is this debate or its relationship, the film's relationship with the gangster movie? Because you make a good argument for it not not necessarily sitting too comfortably as just a pure gangster film uh, because it's, you know, there's more of a character study. There are, there are gangsters there. They're part of the neighborhood. But then at the same time, it does have a relationship with the antecedents of Warner Brothers gangster films and also uh, Coppola's Godfather, which this film sits in between. Yeah. Um, well, I, this is the thing. I mean, I think it's, I mean, so I sometimes think of it as a kind of, a kind of outlier in the genre, you know, right. but in the same way as you know, you know, so it's 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 got a it's got well, it's certainly got the milieu. I mean, this is you know, this world is one. You know, it's kind of the Charlie, the main character. You know, he's torn between the church and 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 the mafia. You know, criminality. You know, and um, and Scorsese. You know, himself said. You know, you know, he grew up. You know, amongst the gangsters and the priests. So you know the neighborhood is kind of the the actual neighborhood that he's um, writing about and and showing us is kind of infused with criminality. So that aspect of it is unavoidable. And then I think 
you know, there's, you know, he, you know, as a as a person and as a filmmaker, you know, he was, all, you know, he'd already imbibed so so much cinema, and a lot of it was those kind of, uh, well, that included, um, you know, like the Warner's gangster films from the. 30s with you know with Cagney the Roaring Twenties and Public Enemy and films like that so and I think you know so I, and I think those kind of films are in his DNA and and socially some of the issues of those 30s films and late end 40s and 40s crime films as well um, about people who are about the underclass who are trying to make a living whichever way they can you know is very much in this movie. Also, and and then at the same time, obviously, there's the kind of uh, he and Martin Martin started writing this before the Godfather book was published. Right. So it's not that they weren't they weren't in any way I think inf- informed by the Godfather, but as you say, they do sit quite interestingly side by side, and and kind of the comparison almost illustrates what kind of film Mean Streets is because you might you know if the Godfather is all about the kind of mob royalty. You know the, the the family that runs this massive criminal business. Mean Streets is the kind of um, you know are the foot soldiers. You know the people who are ducking and diving on the streets. And some of them, like Giovanni, Charlie's uncle. You know he is a player. He's a mob player. So it's just a it's just a different kind of view into that world. But also, as I think you were suggesting, it it doesn't really play with any of the familiar tropes you know you don't have the machine gun shootout in the streets you know you don't have loads of kind of machinations over the dinner table who's going to hit who and who's going to do this you know the violence is spontaneous kind of made up on the hoof you know in a way and so yeah it doesn't play by any of those rules but it does give you a picture of a criminal world Mm. And you, you make you you bring up a point, uh, a film that uh, maybe not many people uh, would recognise. Uh, I think it's called Dead End, the uh, Humphrey Bogart film. Yeah, yeah, William Wyler. Yeah, the, um, Lillian Hellman scripted, I think, if I remember rightly. And um, I, I mean, just in the sense that it's set in a neighbourhood. I mean, that I'm not sure if it's based on a play, but that film's very sort of theatrical in that it's set in one sort of space really yeah and um i'm not sure it's a film that scorsese has ever mentioned not that i've seen mm. anyway but when i saw it it did kind of resonate in a way because yeah it's it's kind of more on the more kind of by the route you know more on the docks i think um mm. and but it's 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 either the first or one of the first films to feature the dead end kids you know who were you know featured in other gangster films but you know these literally child actors who always play kind of delinquent ruffians, you know, um, in the neighbourhood. And, yeah, it's an interesting film because it plays on a, a, the kind of class tensions between between kind of, I don't know, posh New Yorkers who are trying to gentrify this slum area and, and the locals who don't want anything, you know, don't, don't want to know about them at all. So on one level there's a drama and a conflict between these, but then you've got Humphrey Bogart, a child of the neighbourhood, Who's you know now a notorious gangster who's on the run who um comes by because he wants to kind of hook up with an old sweetheart I think it's I can't remember whether it's originally see his mum um or his mum and the and the old girlfriend but he's kind mm. of you know and the and the the young boys kind of re- revere him and everybody else just wants him to kind of quit so but yeah it's it's a strong neighbourhood film albeit on sets 
you know, it's, it's kind of artificial. It's, it's it's a very artificial film, but at least it's trying to be authentic. And again, the great thing about um, about Mean Streets and De Niro always is that it is authentic. Absolutely, I and mean, you have the, it's set in during the San Gennaro Festival, which I think is beginning of September in New York, and it it lasts about a week or so. I think. Well, I think it used to be ten days. I don't know if it still is. Yeah, yeah. Which oddly enough is um, a Neapolitan festival. Scorsese, Sicilian. And his stories, are, you know, his characters are Sicilian, but it was—it's the biggest festival in the area, mm. and and therefore a useful one for him to use. And you know, what's interesting is the whole story takes place during the course of the of this religious festival, which, as at times, I think has had a also had a gangster connection. I think I think the the local villains were kind of creaming some of the money off the San Gennaro festival, which again tells you about the kind of dynamic between between um between the church and the and the crooks i think there might be an episode in the sopranos where there's a festival i'm not sure if it's the same one but it reminds me of it that the one of the fair rides is you know a bit hooky a bit wrong and there's an accident <laughs> and you know it's and of course it's used in godfather part two where de niro exactly. um, it's planning another another point another parallel that you bring up. I I, I loved that uh, that that unity of time as well because in a way cinematically it feels like it could be spending a lot of time. You know, there was a bit when I was watching it where I was thinking, is this another San Gennaro festival? If we as a year gone by between you know between these things happening, and I think that's uh, you bring that up by the fact that it doesn't use establishing shots in the way that conventionally film does, and so. It yeah. does give you a, a slight sense that things are drifting and you're not quite sure, you know, what the interval between certain things are. Well, sometimes uh, you, 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 feel, you feel there's no interval at all in a really charming way. So there's that moment when um, immediately after the pool room scene, you know, so you've had this huge scene where, they, you know, they, um, they go over to another part of town, they argue with these Neapolitans, they have this huge fight, then the police come in and stop it, and then the police leave and they start again. You know, all of this violence and, and chaos. And then, and it's a way that Scorsese, who edited this himself, does a lot of the editing, it's just like snap, and they just walk straight into the bar, you know. But you can tell that they've just come, it's exactly the same group other than De Niro. Um, but, you know, you, the, the huge sense is that they've just got back from the fight. Whereas, yeah, in 99% of other films, you would have had, you know, an stabbing shot of the bar and maybe a couple of other interim shots. And then they all kind of go into the back room and start another scene. But in this one, it's immediate. And then there are other kind of moments where you haven't seen the festival for a while and then suddenly up they pop and you kind of think, okay, well, yeah, it's, you know, it's there's still... You know, maybe it's just a few days later. You know, it's it's we're still in this period in this and and this kind of um yeah this tempo, which I think is really clever. And of course, yeah. it it ends with the with the with the actual final night of the festival. The the song that ends the film, or in the the song that they're singing at the end of the film, is the one that traditionally closes the festival. Um, so yeah, so that's very neat. I was watching it with uh, with. Um, my wife Lydia, who's Italian, and we're obviously we're, we're living in Italy, and uh, she recognised one of the songs and went, "Oh, that's um, uh, Facetta Nera," and and it's it was taken by the fascists. It was a fascist song. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure if they just adopted it. And, and presumably, if it's part of a religious festival, they've just adopted it. But I noticed as well in his uncle's 
uh, luncheon luncheonette, there's a, a big portrait of Il Duce, the Mussolini, in the background as well. So there's also this strand of, you know, uh, you pointed out that uh, they mentioned Lucky Luciano. Yeah. Uh, so the Italians have a, a history, the um, uh, uh, American Italians have a history of sort of, we, we've helped win the war, but also we were on, you know, our mother country was on the wrong side of the war. Yeah. And I like the fact, you know, it's one of those kind of, you're often getting little glimpses on the wall, you know, on the, on, you know, on, on shop windows or inside that luncheonette. There are lots of little posters and glimpses of things that make you realize all of those elements in that culture that all stitch together, you know, the politics, the religion, um, stuff like that. It's, it's, a uh, and also on music. And I wish I knew more about Italian, you know, like folk music, the folk songs that he uses. Um, there were lots and I, I didn't, I couldn't really get behind the consequent, you know, the, the significance of all of those. Very rich. It's very, very rich soundtrack. I think that's partly a Catholic thing as well with the, um, you know, if you go into a Catholic church, just the amount of detail, it would be, it would take you years to just go through a church and study every image because there's so much in there. <laughs> you know, one thing I did, which I mean, it's not, you know, it's not, doesn't find its way in the book, but I, because I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I know very little about, um, you know, the Catholic liturgy or any, any of that. I, I really just, I just want. I sat down in in, in the office, very near to finishing. Of you know, when we were kind of stepping out of the pandemic, and we were back in the office, and uh, I've got a a colleague who's a Catholic, and I wanted to watch, um, for example, that opening church scene with a Catholic. You know, I wanted him to tell me what was going on that I might not really quite understand in terms of, you know, the language Clitel was using in his head, um, you know, the things and, you know, the things he was walking past in the church. You know, we talked a whole, you know, we talked a lot about um, about sin and redemption. Mm. You know, I mean, you can read about that, but it makes a difference if you actually talk to, to, sit down and talk to a practicing Catholic about it. You get a, entirely, and I just wanted to have a better sense, even if it was just for myself and it wasn't going to find its way into the book. Because obviously, a big theme of it is is um, is redemption. Well, I think it's interesting about Scorsese's own spiritual journey, if you like, is that his parents aren't particularly observant Catholics, or not at all, as you make the point. And so, it's something that he's sort of adopted himself. It's not something he's had sort of placed on top of him. Yeah. You know, so in a sense, even though he's coming from a, a you know a fairly Catholic background. He's he's also got a little bit the glee of the convert, you know, who wants yeah. to, you know, I was brought up Catholic. And so, you know, I shucked it off as my first available opportunity. But uh, and, and, and you know, I have the remnants, no doubt about it. But you do get the feeling that Scorsese, this is something that he's cho- this is a road he's chosen. But it's 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 clearly there's an element to his. um, I mean, I'm not going to psychoanalyze Martin Scorsese, but there's an element to his personality, isn't it? That we know, you and I know, and you know, all our, you know, he's, you know, the nature of his cinephilia is, and his film, you know, his film knowledge, his love of film cinephilia, is almost kind of um, diminishes it. But you know, it's intense. It's it's Mm. he's clearly if something engages him, I think. 
it engages him heart and soul 100%. And for whatever reasons, when he was a boy, I, I suspect, you know, because he was quite young and frail and wasn't the kind of kid who was going to, like, you know, stick up for himself in the pl- playground, you know, he drifted towards the church. And I think for a time in his life, he engaged the church with all of the kind of vigour and passion that we know he engages cinema. And, you know, he was an altar boy for a number of years and did think about, you know, kind of becoming a priest um, before slowly drifting towards the other passion, which was film. Um, Mm. So I think it's part of his nature just to embrace everything, heart and soul. Absolutely. And when it comes to Harvey Keitel's redemption, he places that in in Johnny Boy. And I think you make a a De Niro's character. And and you make a really good point of of pointing out that De Niro doesn't, uh, Johnny Boy doesn't necessarily want to be redeemed. You know, I've got to save you. And it's like, from what? You know, from this guy who's, you know, there may be an argument that Charlie's making absolutely everything worse because if there was no filter between him and Johnny Boy, first of all, Michael wouldn't have lent him so much money. And secondly, you know, Johnny Boy would have got a beating and that would have been the end of it. Yeah. And I think in a way, it's one of the, it's almost like, you know, nobody thinks of Mean Streets as a mystery, but I think there is a kind of a mystery there. And I think Scorsese at times has acknowledged, not using that word, but acknowledged the fact that we don't we don't really know. I mean, the thing is that Charlie wants to wants to save Johnny Boy in order to redeem himself. What we yeah. don't well, and on the one hand, as you you know, Johnny Boy doesn't want to be saved. On the other hand, what is there's a question: what really is 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 Charlie seeking redemption for? You know, is it because, and it's never stated clearly, and I, I think, and I take that as a good thing, you know, but is it because, you know, he he does, he is spiritual in some way, and yet he knows he's working as a criminal, and therefore he has to somehow, you know, kind of work that out for himself, or, you know, is it because, you know, for me, in a way, sometimes you have these all quiet moments between Charlie and Johnny Boy, where you get a sense of what their relationship has been their entire life. There's a scene where they're walking in the street and they, and I think Johnny brings it up, you know, when they were kind of like jumped on, you know, they were kind of caught by police once or there was some kind of fracas and Charlie just left Johnny to it and Johnny took a big hit, you know, and sometimes you do wonder, well, you know, how many hits to the head he's taken and, um, and Charlie just left him and they acknowledge that in a couple of sentences and move on. And you get a few, there were about four or five moments like that where you kind of feel that Charlie has let down his friend their entire lives. And maybe that's what he's seeking um, redemption for. But I like the fact that it's open-ended. And as you say, I like the fact that it actually just makes everything worse and worse. There's that there's right at the end in the last scene in the bar when Johnny Boy pulls the gun and he says, Charlie, you got what you wanted. Now again, it's a bit ambiguous because we don't know really what he wanted. But it's kind of, you know, we, we you know, we might say, you know, you, you know, you were asking for that. You know, this is it's, it's blown up in our faces and you're it's your fault. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mm, mm, absolutely. And I mean, weirdly, there's a sort of inversion of what's happening in that original story because Charlie's saying, you didn't have to hold off the cops for me to get away. And he said, because I mean, that's what how Johnny frames it. You know, I took a beating so you could get away. Yeah. And Charlie's yeah. like, I could have got away anyway. You know, you didn't need to do that. Um but you know that's not true. In the pool room, there's that brilliant thing where Charlie is just just when Charlie Charlie ends his fight. But I think he's basically, although it's we've got the soundtrack which is drowning everything out. The impression is he's basically saying, "Look, I felt my hand." You know, he, he's not a fighter. But whereas Johnny is taking eight of them on on his own, <laughs> standing on the trying to kick them. That's so brilliant. That that's De Niro at his classical mm. best. And I love De Niro when he's in one of their very first conversations when they're walking down the street and he's he ducks behind a car because he sees someone who he owns money to. And it's it's just like, is he gone? Yeah, he's gone around the corner. Yeah, but is he gone? Because he could have just be waiting around the corner. And in that sense, Johnny Boy knows more about the streets than Charlie does. Charlie's just yeah. like, oh yeah, he's gone around the corner. He's gone. Yeah, but that could be a trick. And actually, you're making me think because also um, if I had to if I had to choose a favourite scene in the film other than the entrance into Volpe's which I, I just think is quite awesome it would be the conversation between the two of them um, in the back of the bar about the debt and you know the the, the tall tale that he tells about um, you know Joey Joey Clams you know and, and, the, and the card game but I and that's fabulous for so many reasons but you made me think of it because you know, I think Johnny is much more of the streets. And also I think he he understands their relationship better than Charlie does. And and apparently De Niro, but De Niro, um, Scorsese has often said that De Niro felt that there needed to be another scene which explained or, or showed us the hold that Johnny has over Charlie. Um, and that's a kind of streetwise hold, I think. Mm. Um, and so they added that scene. They devised it, and it was they got an extra day to shoot it at the end of the shoot. And and um, and I think it's wonderful for that. You just really understand how these two work together, but particularly from that controlling kind of streetwisey angle. Yeah, yeah. And how how fascinated Charlie is by him as well. It's just like you know, you're telling me bullshit, but at the same time, it's fascinating bullshit. Go on, tell me more. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you just lapped. You just lapped it all up. Um, <laughs> it's very very funny, and um, and you know, kind of at least semi-improvised, which you can see on their faces. You know, you can see the way the Kaitel, but you're not entirely sure whether it's Kaitel who's trying to keep up with this Shaggy Dog story or or, or Charlie. Or yeah. Way, you know, you're really not sure which which man is, is holding on for their life. <laughs> <laughs> and talking about sort of... Um... You know the the, the relationships, uh, and one of the one of the the sparks that that will sort of perpetuate the ultimate meltdown is Charlie's relationship with with women, and to some degree, this is arguably sort of uh, beginning the Scorsese template for 
how women will be represented and treated in his films uh typically for for you know with with some very telling exceptions like uh Alice doesn't live here anymore you know you have Teresa Johnny Boy's is it Johnny Boy's sister or cousin uh cousin cousin yes i thought it was cousin yeah and the the stripper uh from the bar i mean you know that template it's not it's not a, it's not a good one is it it's mm. it's not a um, uh, positive one. The women tend to fare fed badly in his films, and particularly in the films that he does with De Niro, uh, which is, you know, it's not to obviously denigrate them as human beings, but I think that they're, they're always trying to show the characters that they're, you know, talking about mm. in some kind of realistic light. And, you know, so I think we're not, and, you know, um, but this one is, so yeah, Teresa is, um, so, and it's very much part of Charlie's dynamic in the film as well, because he's trying to, he thinks, look out for Johnny, but also he's trying to keep on the right side of his uncle Giovanni. He wants to take over this restaurant, which is about to fall into his uncle's hands. Um, and his uncle doesn't want him to be involved with either Johnny Boy or Teresa. You know, Teresa's kind of part of the neighbourhood but one, you know, it's, it's unclear what all the family connections are, but I think that, you know, Giovanni kind of looks down on her family. Um, but also, interestingly, they, everyone kind of look, they all look down on her because she wants to leave the neighbourhood, mm. you know. So if you forget for a while how the men treat her, she's an interesting figure because all these guys are all trapped in this kind of codified, narrow and narrow-minded, bigoted world downtown. And she wants to get out of that. You know, she wants to kind of have it, you know, lead her own life, get an apartment uptown. She's persuaded, trying to persuade Charlie to do that, but she's not getting anywhere. So she's an interesting figure anyway, just because she represents, you know, a desire to escape. But then, yes, Charlie doesn't doesn't really treat her particularly well. There's the dreadful scene at the end of the film, uh can we do spoilers? I suppose we've been given lots of spoilers. <laughs> the most the most terrifying scene in the film, in a way, is at the end when, when Charlie and Johnny finally go at each other and Teresa has an epileptic fit. Trying to break them up, it just gets too much and she has a fit and Johnny immediately just throws invective at her and walks away. Charlie kind of thinks about it, stays with her for a few seconds and just follows his mate. You know, it's such a version, you know, of his, or of anybody who's having, you know, he, he, you know, he should be staying with the person who's who's in distress, but he leaves her. But also there's, when we first meet her, when they're in bed together, the language he uses towards her is, is pretty vile and sexist and narrow. And, I mean, in many ways, Charlie is um, a kind of, development of a character from who's at knocking at my door which cartel played called jr um we didn't say but scorsese originally conceived a trilogy of of a film which was never made or a script that was never made called jerusalem jerusalem and which involved kids and then there was who's at knocking and then it would be mean streets um and uh jr the character in who's at knocking is um again it's just somebody who who treats his his partner very very badly treats women very very badly and, and you know and it, is it because you know is it a kind of you know I, I don't want to analyze too much you know is it is it a catholic view of women is it an italian view of women is it is it a roman catholic view of, you know is it all of that all together i don't know is it a 1973 view of women oh, i mean and, i'm sorry exactly is it a 1973 
Preview the as well, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, all of that, it's very complicated and not good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a bit where uh, he's responding to criticism that you quote in the book where uh, somebody in the New York Times says, you know, why do I want to, want to spend time with these horrible people? And he's like, well, I do. I'm, You know, why should I care about these people? Well, I do. You know, they aren't perfect people but they've, they've i mean even teresa you know she's she's called the c word in one scene and then she she sees a black uh chambermaid well, coming out of the hotel and she treats her um disgracefully and and it, you, you you immediately think oh wait a minute i was feeling sorry for you and now you're you're treating this other person badly so you know how how's that, that gonna work that's right and actually there are two uh, sort of two kind of uh, things to say on that because and I didn't really articulate it particularly well because I think the problem is that which we all do you know we're viewing apart from aside from anything else we are viewing you know any film of any period but we're viewing this film from 1973 through the prism of 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 you know how we like to treat people today but but what Scorsese is doing you know as a as a as an artist and a really good filmmaker is it's just showing it exactly as it is you know he wants to show an give us an authentic and he's he's often said that you know in a, in a way mean streets for him is a kind of you know act of anthropology you know and he wants to show us this world warts and all exactly as it is and one of the reasons that de niro has always been a good collaborator one of the reasons with him is because de niro you know they're not apologizing for their characters it's funny isn't it because you often hear actors say oh you know we we never judge our characters because the minute we judge our characters you know that's the end of it you know we we, we have to believe in them 100 percent. and and you know i'm that is sincere and i think it's a very useful kind of attitude for an actor to take but it, it's the the Scorsese template for that is another level. You know the the, the kind of truth telling of uh, you know of his better films, and that's why they're so painful to watch. You know, Raging Bull. I, you know, when you're watching Kathy Moriarty, get, you know, get bashed every which way in in Raging Bull, it's tough. But you know, that's a true portrait of that figure. Yeah, and I must admit, I watched that film so many different ways as I was growing up. You know, I watched it partly as a sort of like, this is a great, grittier boxing film than Rocky. And then, you know, as I get older and I rewatch it today, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is just about domestic violence. I, you know, yeah. the the boxing's hardly hardly features in my memory of it now. Almost, you know, it becomes something else. It's, um, I, I think that's possibly one of the Scorsese films I find the most difficult to to reappraise yeah and actually when i think of you know the way we've been talking about talking for the last five five minutes or so kind of it reminds me again of somebody who i make quite a play of in the book which is john cassavetes you know and you know on the one hand you know i think he's a extraordinary filmmaker you know that it's is quite important to me, but you watch his films and they're hard work. And you particularly, so for example, when you watch a film like Husbands, I think the Husbands is a good good one to kind of put into this conversation when talking about Mean Streets or Raging Bull or whatever, is because the attitude towards women by the by the by the men in husbands is is again you know it's despicable and it's and um, but also you know just just the the the, the whole. The, the human interaction in the Casabetti's film is so raw and in your face and true to a certain kind of human dynamic, you know, so kind of more, more, more distressing human dynamic 
that it makes, you know, it's, it's brilliant art, but it's tough to watch. I think Casavetti's at his best, one of the best filmmakers ever. Yeah. And um, and uh, you know, not not necessarily at his worst, but uh, when when people are not when he turns his camera towards certain things, it's all, it becomes almost unwatchable on many different levels. Yeah, apparently, I mean, you never, you know, I'm not quite sure this true, but apparently, um, when Kaitel made Duelists some years later um, with Jenny Runnicut, he one of his co-stars was Jenny Runnicut. She was in Husbands, and so on the um, on her interview of the uh, Blu-ray of Husbands, she talks about. Uh, chatting with uh, Kaitel on the set of The Duelists when Kaitel told her that the cast were asked to watch Husbands a few times during the making of Mean Streets. No, if true, not surprising. Yeah, oh, there's definitely, I mean, well, Casavetti's, you know, you quote that famous thing he said to uh, Scorsese after Boxcar Bertha, you know, well done, you've just wasted a year of your life. <laughs> making a piece of shit, yeah, yeah. No, but tell me what you really think, John. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't sprinkle it with any hundreds and thousands. Well, or... he was clear. He was clearly in life when he was on film. John Casavetti. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Doesn't beat that bush. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's get to the end of the movie, which in in some ways is that sort of like a classical. What we would see today is a classical seventies ending. You know, where every other film had to finish with a bloody shootout that kind of had to almost come from a, from nowhere as well, had to come from a you know clear blue sky almost. There, um, you know, Teresa, Johnny Boy and Charlie are trying to escape the city. I'm not sure if they're sort of almost like they're heading back into the city because they're or back into the neighborhood because of uh, they can't seem to find the right road. And then uh, Michael and uh, an unnamed assassin played by Martin Scorsese sort of pull up. So this is all spoilers <laughs> beside them and, and you know, unleash gruesome violence. I mean, it's, uh, you know, arterial blood is flowing by the, by the, by the end of the scene. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a, a, a shocker. Uh, of an ending um you have a reading for it in the book which i i wanted to sort of explore a little bit further because you sort of said oh this is like the end of it for everyone everyone's screwed you know um uh charlie is his career in the mafia might be you know crushed by this uh teresa we you know we don't know what she's being led into an ambulance but she's obviously been badly hurt and and johnny boy's probably dead you know, um, given that he's been shot in the neck. I was wondering about that Charlie's career in the Mafia thing, because I think the Mafia might might be okay with someone being shot occasionally. <laughs> um, but I think Scorsese said something like, um, I can't remember now exactly what, but he said something like, um, you know, they can't go, you know, they, they would be better off, effectively he said they'd be better off dead. You know, they can't go, you know, their, their lives, their lives, you know, in the community are, are over, which kind of, which is what got me thinking in a in a way, trying to, you know, trying to kind of analyse the truth of that, you know, for myself, because, you know, it's it's an open ending, we can read it how we, how we like. But, you know, there's Giovanni, his uncle, has a line earlier in the film where he says to Charlie, you know, when he's trying to warn, warn him off Johnny Boy, he says, honourable, honourable men go with honourable men, you know, and... And so, you know, arguably, Charlie has revealed that he's not, in his uncle's kind of perspective, that honourable. You know, he has fucked up. So whether or not he'd be taken back into the fold, you know, is a is a moot point. But my other point was that, you know, if he isn't, that would be a good thing. You know, I mean, because because they are just 
trapped here. You know, if he were to be, you know, rejected by his uncle, and and you know, had, or and, and you know, every, and was a laughing stock around Little Italy, then you know, maybe he and Teresa could have another life. But it's, you know, it's kind of open ended, which is fine. What I would, but well, one thing I think is worth saying is that. Um, because you mentioned that scene as as being quite surprising in the context, you know, it can, you said it kind of, you know, it's a violent scene at the end of this film and maybe came out of nowhere. But that was the scene, and that was the real life incident, and there was a real life incident like that that was the starting block for Scorsese wanted to make this kind of story. You know, in the sixties when he was a student but still living at home in Little Italy, he had a close run thing like that. You know, he and his mate would be around by another guy who was acting all bullshit and they thought it was a bit you know this other guy was being too extravagant so they got out of the car and then the next morning they found out that a few blocks later that car had been shot upon and another passenger had been shot in the eye so again it's it's always interesting when you um i mean you know this film is so born out of his own experience to the extent that when we see a scene that we might feel has been you know, maybe a little bit pegged on or a little bit added on and, and uh, doesn't quite fit with the talky-talky-talky confrontations that we've been watching for an hour and a half. Actually, you know, it kind of kick-started the movie. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't mean to mean it's been... I don't mean to say it's been um, sort of... I can think of, of examples where that is the case, where you feel that the the new morning has just been put there to sort of spice things up and close things with a bang. But no, I don't mean that. I think Michael has to sort of shit or get off the pot, so to speak. There has to be some sort of confrontation. Johnny Johnny Boy is from from the first moment uh, a kind of a tragic figure who's who's gonna not gonna end well. It's just kind of, I think it's similar to Taxi Driver. You feel everything's going to boil and he somehow manages to make it boil. Instead of the pot boiling over, as you were expecting, he blows up the kitchen. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's so big. I mean, it's not just they get shot and the car crashes and you hear the car horn. Um, It. it, you know, it, it it's really, really extravagantly bloody. Yeah. It works. I think it works. Do you think it works? Oh, oh, no, I think it works absolutely. I think it absolutely, uh, you yeah. know. I, in fact, I, again, re-watching the film uh, following the space of some years, I kind of remembered it being more sudden. And, and it reminded me a lot of Chinatown in that, you know, it's another sort of terrible yeah. denouement but suddenly you're in a street scene that's very recognizable with you know oh this is a place where ambulances exist as well and there mm. is another part of the city which doesn't care about all this and is just going to pick up the dead and take them to hospitals and stuff so it, it it's and i don't know if that's a bad, bad thing or a good thing so yeah i think it really works on many many different levels and i was re- reminded of a lot of films when i was watching this again i uh danny boyle's train spotting i thought the introduction of the characters and the and the way that the narrative is structured was entirely down to the the influence of this movie I mean, I've yeah. not I've not seen him comment on it, or, or I don't remember him commenting on it. But it it seems seeing Johnny Boy walking up the street and blowing up the the mailbox is like ah that that's train spotting, you know? Yeah, and I mean, in a way, I kind of felt you know when I was thinking about what the influence of this film might be, you know, and you know, it, it, there's the temptation obviously to think about the other crime movies 
you know, especially crime movies involving foot soldiers, lower echelon opera, you know, all of that. You know, it's tempting to think of crime movies that might have been inspired by that, and it's very easy to make a list. But what I was more kind of um, intrigued by and what I think is more relevant is just, you know, Danny, you know, to think of other kinds of filmmakers, you know, in the years since, since that I, I think who have been influenced in the way that they treat di- uh, characters, the way they treat dialogue, the way they depict neighbourhoods, the, the way they, you know, they don't adhere necessarily to story arcs, all of that. You know, I think, I think Mean Street's, you know, kind of re- reverberates in you know across all kinds of and Danny Boyle, Danny Boyle is a a good example of somebody you wouldn't necessarily think of as, as of, of being inspired by Martin Scorsese, but maybe it's just like there in the DNA now. Yeah, and you see how he's, you know, I mean the the, the story that we you talked about earlier about the the lion cubs in the back of the bar is I've seen that that sort of almost stands alone as a vignette that tells you much more about this character who. Otherwise, might just be the barman. And you point out, you know, he's got bandages. Now you know why he's got bandages on his fingers <laughs> all the time. And I, I hadn't, you know, I'm just in the film and I hadn't clicked. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's such a beautiful thing without it, you know, obviously not being obvious because I didn't get it. Arguably, it is a film of, of vignettes, you know. Uh, you know, they all kind of, they all stitch together. Um, and actually, again, only briefly going back to what you, things you were saying about the end the their vignettes but the, the the you know the editing it slowly builds and builds and builds and builds so these little scenes and there are so many little scenes you know and and to begin near the beginning there you know there are lots of kind of like comic quite a few comic interludes you know something serious is broken up with something comic but then in the last arguably last third of the film, it just drives and drives and drives towards that ending. So although it does seem suddenly shocking, there's been a motor towards it for quite mm. some while. But it's almost like an invisible motor, I think. No, absolutely. David Carradine being shot up in the bar being a particular one uh, that, that nobody's traumatised about. <laughs> nobody's, you know, then you have a really warm discussion about friendship after that. Because it's because it's because it's violence. Yeah. I was watching. I was watching the film with with a with a friend a couple of weeks ago, and there was a, there's a scene where the first scene between Charlie and his uncle. Uh, Charlie enters the uh, the luncheonette, and he says to his uncle, uh, "Uncle, I was there at the um, I was there at the shooting the other night." Now, my friend has seen you know like we have the film many times, and and he immediately kind of chipped in and said, "Hang on a minute, that's too soon. The shooting hasn't happened yet." I said, no, that shooting hasn't happened, you know, the Caridine shooting. And I, you know, but I never ever thought that because as far as I'm concerned, yeah, that shooting hasn't happened. This was another one because there were always shootings. There were always breakout fights. Violence is day to day. That's so funny. That's so funny. So what um so Demetrius, you've you've uh, written this BFI classics and you 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 wrote as well um a book on Latin American cinema, I think. South American cinema. South American cinema, yes. South American cinema, yeah. yeah, what was the difference between those two? Because because you've gone from something very general and very to something to honing in on a specific film. Did you find that that shift was that a dif- difficult to do or or how did that work? It was work? certainly different. I mean, it was a while ago now, but so that was that's the, that was a favorite book of new South American cinema. I mean, it was born of uh, my original conversations with Faber were about the um, I was going to do a directors on directing, but then they wanted to broaden out and 
And, you know, and had just done a, a book on Mexican cinema, which is also why mine is South American and not Latin American. Right. So they just wanted to kind of, you know, look at, you know, look at broader, you know, look at regions. So the reason, so that was different for two reasons. One was it was a whole continent cinema. It was new, it was new South American. So it was from the late nineties onwards. Right. It's a whole continent cinema, but also, I, you know, in that favourite tradition, um, it, we wanted it to be driven by interviews, you know. So, you know, and we're talking about, you know, Walter Salas, Fernando, uh, um, Morales, uh, Lissandro Alonso, and oh, those two in Brazil, Lissandro Alonso and Lucrecia Martel in Argentina, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it involved, like, I went to Argentina, I went to Brazil, um, I went to Chile, um, I caught up with other directors, other directors also, you know, on the festival circuit in Europe. It was different for, yeah, so it was different for those two reasons. I mean, it was interview led. I mean, as a as a topic, what I didn't really realise until, until I started going was that was that all these, it wasn't just about, say, the finance of the film industries in these countries changing and suddenly people having more money and making fun, fun, fun movies. It was all about politics. You know, I, I realised I was writing a book about a regional cinema, which was also about um, a continent, but it was also about a continent that was kind of rising out of um, dictatorship. You know, all these countries, or most of them, were kind of coming out of dictatorships. And so there was a new kind of freedom for filmmakers to make movies. Um, so, in short, very different. That was that broad, took four years, travelling all over the world, to interview people, this was one director. Well, on, on the surface, one director, one film. Uh, I didn't interview him. It was all kind of like found material, mostly written during the pandemic. Um, so they were very, very different experiences. But it's interesting because, you know, a film isn't just a film, is it? You kind of broaden it, it, you know, broadens out in its own way. Because I started... Um, and also, I was commissioned in um, 2020, but we wanted it to come out this year for the 50th anniversary. So I right. had a bit of time. So for the first few months, I just treated myself in a way to to explore. You know, so I the very first things I did were was to um, watch Scorsese's own two documentaries, My Voyage to Italy, mm. and um, Personal Journey Through American Cinema. So I just wanted to get to know him because he was making a Mean Streets is a personal movie. Mm. So I wanted to get to know Scorsese, and I wanted, to, and that's partly through his movies. So I watched those documentaries, and then I watched all the films he was featured in his documentaries, and then, and you know, which included loads of film noir, uh, loads of gangster movies from thirties, near realism. You know, I revisited all of Cassavetti's, blah 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 blah. So, in a way, a much smaller book still had quite a quite a broad experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And have you seen his most recent film, Killers Killers of the Flower Moon? No, I'm going to see that during the LFF. Um, ah, right, right. Time. So I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Um, but isn't it wonderful that so let's call Mean Streets his first film cheekily, you know, but 50 mm. years after his breakthrough film, 50 years, he's making another one, which is, you know, seems to be lauded to the hills. And with De Niro and, and a woman doesn't get treated very well. <laughs> so nothing's changed. <laughs> he hasn't moved an inch. Come on, boy. Oh, poor man. Poor man. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, uh, so uh, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you, but I have one last um, question, Demetrios, which is, uh, could we have a recommended film book from you? I was thinking about this. I, I might 
cheat a tiny bit. Everybody does. Don't worry about oh, it. Do nobody, nobody has ever given me one book. Not a single person. In 127 episodes, not a single person has given me a single okay, But I'm going to cheat in one way. I mean, I okay. mentioned it in a sense. Um, I think when I was talking about the, the Faber's um, directors on directing, series so my cheat is to is to have all i haven't read all of them is to have is to have the whole series okay 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 i'll give you that you it's a bigger cheat than usual that's a big cheat but it's like it's like taking the collected works of shakespeare on the desert island isn't it but 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 i just I, i think you know because i started i mean you know you know earlier when i was when i said that i was in lockdown and I looked at my bookshelves to think, well, what have I got that I can get started with, you know, and I, you know, and I had, for example, Scorsese on Scorsese, but I had the first edition, which I bought, you know, when it came out, um, I can't remember that, but I think it was in the eighties or something. And I've had a couple of other editions since, and, um, you know, the pages were yellow and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I've, um, it's a bit like what we're saying with the BFI classics, but more so I've always, you know, whether it's Scorsese or Kieslowski or David Lynch or Werner Herzog, you know, I mean, it's those books are such a great introduction to um, to filmmakers. Um, and I love the fact and it goes to what I was saying about investigating Mean Streets and also the the Latin American, you know, films have contexts, you know, mm. it's biographical context, uh, you know, uh, uh, a national context, a political context. And I love the story. You know, when you read one of those directors on directing, you know, you get all of that. You get all of the background. And it's I just think it's a wonderful way to um to kind of enter a filmmaker's world. So I mm. would have all of those. Excellent. Well, great choice. Yeah, I was just thinking about the context earlier when you were talking at the very beginning and you were talking about that New York Film Festival in 1973 when Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets opens the festival, Terence Malick's um badlands closes the festival and in between i think you have tarkovsky and Werner herzog has a film there and it's just reading that program just makes you go wow i mean I, we've got great cinema happening at the moment and all the rest of it but 1973 was was a, a vintage year for the new york film festival uh programmers i think i think so yeah it was yeah it was just it was just fantastic but and it, but and this was the kind of environment that that scorsese that was feeding scorsese as well yeah absolutely and Vol- and warner brothers bought both badlands and mean streets and then fucked up the distribution so <laughs> because hey. <laughs> because they were distracted by uh, the Exorcist, yeah, that was yeah. So you know, well, you know, it's Mark Kermode's favourite film, so we've got to we've got to <laughs> like it, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I like the Exorcist, but I watched it recently at the Venice Film Festival, and I I thought this is a great film, but it's it's like a four star masterpiece. You know, it's like uh, for me, it's just like I really like this, and I would almost automatically give it five stars for how influential it is and for how important it is for the genre and this, that, and the other. But if I'm just watching it in the cold light of day, I would say, oh, it's really good. It's four stars. You know, I like it, but I don't love it. Yeah. no, yes. I'm going to cut that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want to end on the exorcist. Yeah, no, I, absolutely not. We want to end on mean streets with with blood gushing from from neck wounds. What we didn't say, I mean, I, I get a sense you're finished now, but what but what, what we didn't say is, and I don't even know if I said it that explicitly in the book. Uh, maybe mm. I did, or I did it, but in different ways, in different parts of the book. But 
when we were talking about that last scene, um, mm. because there were, you know, you've got when you think of it, you've got Scorsese in the back of a car mm. and Robert De Niro holding his neck as blood spurts out, both in Taxi Driver. You know, it was, you know, it was, you know, in just on that on that kind of very visual personal level, directly casting ahead to to um, actually probably the film that made him a worldwide star, which was yeah. Taxi Driver. And also, doesn't De Niro drive a taxi in part of the film? That somebody. Uh, um... I'm fairly sure it's him. I mean, I've right. had I've had other people. Um, it's when you know he's when Kaitel gets a taxi to kind of hook up with uh, hook up's a bad word, but when when he's when he's going on this kind of date, he's arranged with the dancer from the club, and um, and then has cold feet. I mean, he tells the driver to drive on, and there's a kind of blink and you'll miss it profile. I for me it's it's De Niro with a wig, but no, to be to be to be discussed. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Demetrius. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Good fun. So that was me and Demetrius talking about uh, Scorsese's film, uh, Mean Streets. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I certainly did, and I think Demetrius did too. I hope so. I'm not sure who we've got on next week, actually. I think it might be... Well, no. Let's just have it as a surprise. Uh, I'm sorry if my intro and outro has been a bit um, understated, but I'm I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, so that's the the reason. But I, I wanted to put out this episode... Uh, this week because uh, because it's a good conversation and um, and yeah yeah I, I'm sacrificing my own health for the good of my listeners I hope you appreciate it <laughs> until next week take care Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.